Let's talk about our latest tough question. Uh, and tonight it's about science and faith. So some of you know the name of Richard Dawkins. Many of you perhaps do not. He wrote a book in 2006 that became a, a huge bestseller called The God Delusion. He's a, an English scholar, uh, an atheist, and one of his, I don't have the exact quote, but uh, one of his statements was, you can't be an intelligent, rational person, especially somebody who understands science, and be a person of faith. It's just impossible. This was back in the decade after 9-11. Isn't it hard to believe that it's been 18 years since 9-11? And in that succeeding decade, there were many books written by people like uh, Dawkins, like Christopher Hitchens, Sam, Sam Harris, and others, and they were called the New Atheists. They were called that because they were much more combative than the, than the quote, un, old atheists. There were a lot of books sold. Uh, believe it or not, atheism hasn't actually grown as a percentage of the American public since then. The latest uh, survey I saw put the number at 3% of the population, which is what it's been for quite a while. But those who are unbelievers and, and skeptics, I'd say, are doing a better job of getting their message out. Uh, they, they're very uh, articulate, they're very expressive, and if you're on the internet at all, if you're on the internet at all, you hear from them. If there's ever a, let me just give you a word of advice, if you're not internet savvy, when you read a news article on the internet and there's co comments underneath, those aren't for you to read. I know it says they're there for you to read, but they're not. They, they will do you no good. You, your, your life will not be better if you read the comments. Um, but especially if there's a story about religion or faith, uh, there's always at least one uh, internet atheist who's, who pipes up with his or her arguments. Um, and so there's, there's a real feeling among some, especially younger people, that, well, looks to me like the smarter people aren't believers in God. Or the smarter people, I may not be an atheist myself, but it sure seems like the people who are more intelligent, more articulate, more educated, they, don't, they just don't have religious faith. And in fact, when you read surveys about people who leave organized Christianity, one of their reasons is, well, Christianity seems so unscientific. And the question is, is it true that you have to choose between the Bible and science, between using your brain or using your faith? Because that's what you often hear. There's a book that I want to recommend to you, and this is, this is in your notes, uh, called The Language of God. It's written by a man named Dr. Francis Collins. Now, Collins is not a preacher. He is a scientist. He's a geneticist specifically. So he, he studies genes. Uh, he, in fact, was the director of the National Institutes, National Institutes of Health uh, several years ago. He became the first person to map the human genome. Now, I just said that as if I know what it means. <laughs> I very vaguely know what it means. Dr. Francis Collins knows what it means. This was a breakthrough. This is gonna open up doors for cures to various diseases. So this is a serious scientist. And in his book, he tells his story. He was raised in an irreligious family. I mean, a very loving family, a very supportive family, but God was never mentioned. Religion was just not a factor. When he was a young adult, he went into science. And as he was studying, and like many people, uh, who were similar to Francis Collins, he just, he loved to study, he loved knowledge. And it occurred to him, you know, I've just taken it for granted that there is no God. I've never really done any research. And I can't really call myself a man of learning if I'm gonna say there's no God without actually doing any research. So he decided to study that. 
And after a conversation with a Methodist minister, he decided, well, I'm going to read this book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Now, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you are an atheist and you want to stay an atheist, I recommend you don't read Mere Christianity <laughs> by C.S. Lewis. So after reading that book, Collins was struck by the question, if there's no God, why is there such a thing as right or wrong? If there's no God, why aren't we just like all the other animals? You know, we talked about it a couple weeks ago when we talked about proofs for God's existence. How come we don't behave like animals do? How come the strongest don't get what they want? Why do we have ideas like justice and mercy and self-sacrifice? And he really wrestled with that, and I'm shortening this by a lot. Eventually, that came to a point where he decided, well, there must be a creator, and he must be a good being, and then eventually that led him to believe in Jesus. And he, he writes the language of God, and it's part testimony, and it's part, here's how I find God in nature, in science. Here's how my study of, of, of science informs me of who God is. And so I recommend it to you, uh, especially if you are a scientifically minded person, or if you have friends or loved ones who are, and you want to know how to relate to them, it's a good one. Uh, I've recommended these two books before. Tim Keller wrote a, a pair of books, again, pastor for many years in Manhattan, New York. And so he, he knows how to talk to people who don't come from religious background at all. The reason for God and making sense of God. Uh, it's the kind of book that you would give someone who would not respect it if you just said, here's what the Bible said. But here's a book that says, well, let's just talk about what, what is true and what's not. Uh, so having said that, I want to deal with three questions as best I am able. Number one, aren't science and faith in conflict? That's what we commonly believe. That is, I bet if you asked, if you went door to door and surveyed people, even in this part of the world, aren't science and faith in conflict? A great majority would say, yes, I see that on the news every day. I read that in the paper. I see that on the internet. Where did this idea come from? Because there's no reason why they should be in conflict. So the, 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 under, the actual truth is modern science emerged from a Christian worldview. In the ancient world, you know, after Jesus, uh, after the time of Christ, there were two basic streams of thought in, in Western society. There was Platonism, which was uh, the pagan view, viewpoint, came from the, the philosophies of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. And then there was Christianity that diverged on the opposite side. And in Platonism, matter was meaningless. All that mattered was the human soul. So it didn't matter what happened to your body. It didn't what happened to, matter what happened to the world. All that mattered was your soul, and you were just hoping your soul went somewhere good. Whereas Christianity taught that the body mattered. The world matters. God created the world, and he looked at it, and he said, it is good. And so Christians began to study what makes the world go around, what makes, what makes life exist the way it does, what are the natural laws, and that's where science actually came from. So you read about people like Kepler, Galileo, Copernicus, Pascal, Priestley, Pasteur, and Newton. These are the pioneers of early science. All of them were devout Christians. All of them would say in their writings, I study science so I can know my creator better. And you might look at someone like Galileo or, or Copernicus and say, yeah, but they got crossways with the church. That doesn't mean they weren't devout men of God. If you know anything about church history, you know the church has been on the wrong side of a lot of things down through the years. So uh, 
Yes, science came from a Christian worldview. Here's another fact. This is in your notes. Rice University did a study about 10 years ago, uh, just studied professional scientists to ascertain, is there such a thing as scientific faith? 36% of the scientists they polled said they do believe in God. 18% said they attend church weekly and 19% pray on a regular basis. Now that's much lower than the population in general, but it does prove there are people who are professional scientists who are also people of faith. So where did this idea come from? So there are basically three streams that I think it comes from. Uh, there's a sociologist at Notre Dame named Christian Smith, who's a, a good guy to read on these kinds of topics. He wrote a book sev several years ago called The Secular Revolution. And he talked about how turn of the 20th century, so 1800s going into the, into the 1900s, uh, there was uh, this idea in academia so in the higher education, especially in the Northeast, a lot of those old colleges and universities were still under the control of religious denominations because a lot of your major universities in America were started by churches. And so here you head into the late 1800s, early 1900s, those denominations still controlled those universities. They would appoint people on the boards, et cetera. And there were, uh, Smith calls them secular elites. They were people who thought the world would be better off with less religious influence. And they decided, let's take these universities away from religious influence and, and make them secular institutions like they should be. So they started spreading around this idea that religion is opposed to science. And they had evidence they could prove, because this was the beginning of the fundamentalism movement. Now, let me do some explaining. So when fundamentalism first arose, all it meant was, let's get back to the fundamentals of the faith which is a good thing, right? However, it became, the popular version of fundamentalism became, we need to war against the things of this world. It's sort of a half version of the, of the gospel. Yes, don't be a friend of this world. If anyone's a friend of the world, he's not a friend of God. And yet, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's almost as though they believed half the message but not the other. And so there were fundamentalist preachers at that time who made a lot of noise about the godlessness sweeping our country, and we've got to watch out for these scientists. And you remember uh, reading in history class when you were growing up about the Scopes Monkey Trial in Tennessee and, and things like this, that where, where there, were, there was a, a strong conflict between faith and science led by certain preachers. And so these secular elites were able to point to stories like that and say, listen, America is going to fall behind academically if we continue to allow religion to have a place in the academic world. And so, one by one, these universities began to become entirely secular. That's part of where this idea comes from. Secondly, I think it comes from the 24-hour news cycle. No, I'm not blaming the media, because that's too convenient. But I am saying, when you've got news 24 hours a day, and you've got four or five different channels that are 24 hours a day, you need content. You've got to, find, you've got to have something on there that people are going to watch. And what do you think more people are going to watch? A story about... An earnest scientist like Francis Collins, who is a man of science and a man of faith, looking at his life, or a story about some small town uh, that fired a science teacher because the local preacher didn't like it, or uh, a pastor who has loudly proclaimed that because there's a blood moon outside, the, the world's going to end in six days, or uh, some group opposing stem cell research because they don't think it's biblical. Stories like that will always get pressed because that's what people will watch. Because 24-hour news cycle thrives on conflict and controversy. This is why I always say 
one of the worst things you can do for your spiritual life is watch the news all day. And I mean that. Number three, it's on us too. Because we have a tendency to speak where we don't know what we're talking about. And that's especially true on the internet. No, the internet's not evil. It's just a tool. But we have to be careful the way we use it. We can glorify our God or we can drive people away from him. And I often see Christians who I adore, who I think are, are wonderful people, and yet they engage in arguments and they haven't done their research. And they say things that they can't back up. And they post stories on Facebook or they send them via email. Let me give you an example. I don't know how many times I've gotten a story from a fellow Christian. It's the same one about how scientists at NASA have discovered there's a missing day. Have y'all seen this one? There's a missing day. There's 24 hours they can't account for. It's never really explained how they find missing 24 hours. But anyway, they say this corroborates the story in the book of Joshua about how the Lord caused the sun to stand still in the sky for 24 hours. Aha, see, science has proved the Bible is true. Is that story in Joshua? Absolutely. So did it happen? You bet it did. I, I, will, I will bet my life on it. It's in the Word. It, it happened. But that science, that that internet story has been disproven over and over again. There's no evidence for it. Someone made it up and we're just gullibly passing it along. And that does not, we think that bolsters our faith, but it doesn't. It makes us look foolish. It makes the gospel look foolish. Make sure if something sounds too good to be true, it usually is unless it's in the word of God. So don't pass things along unless you know they're true. And don't argue with someone unless you know what you're talking about. It's very simple. There, there are things that you are expert on. If you're not an expert on it, just let the experts talk. Um, because what we do when we, when we say these things, when we pass these things along, is we make people like members of your own family who are currently turning away from faith. They say, well, I'm, I don't want anything to do with that. Because look at my brother. Look at my dad. Look at my grandma. They don't care anything about science. All they care about is what they're church tells them. It makes them think, I've got to choose between my brain and my faith, and I can't say no to my brain. So let me just say, for the record, thank God for science. Because when I get an infection, I don't call for a witch doctor to come over and kill a chicken and stuff a root up my nose. And when there's a, an eclipse outside, I don't go running for the hills because, you know, the dragon from the sky is coming to eat us or something. There are so many ways our lives are better because there are men and women who are gifted by God to do these kinds of things, who research the way the world works. There are people in this room who are in the medical field. You do what you do because of science. You've made life better for all of us. There's no reason why science and faith should be in conflict. They're complementary. They each answer questions the other one does not. There are questions science cannot answer, such as why is there a world? Why is there matter? What is the purpose of life? What does it mean to love someone? and Why is that important? We need faith to answer the most important questions of life, but we need science to help make life live worth living. So, science and faith not in conflict. Number two, but hasn't science disproved the Bible? So, we as God's people, as evangelical Christians, one of the things that sets us apart is we live by this book. We do not worship this book. 
But this is how we know who God is. This is how we know how he wants us to live. This is how we know how to know him and to follow his plans. We believe that this book is truth without mixture of error, right? That it is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and every word of it is true. And so we base our lives upon it. This is how we know how to live. And that's a conversation stopper for a lot of our our friends out there in the world because they'll say, well, how can you base your life on a book that's so obviously primitive, uh, so obviously wrong. I mean, this book claims the world was created in six days when science proves that it was created over millions and millions of years, or, or it took millions of years to reach its present state. So how do you reconcile that? Well, many Christians, when they read Genesis 1, they say, that's what the Bible says. I take it literally. And there are scientists, they are a minority, but there are scientists Uh, who believe the biblical doctrine of creation, who who say there is evidence in science to back this up. There are those who who study intelligent design and and, and show, uh, here's evidence that says that the theory of evolution cannot be true as stated. That evidence is out there, and there are people who will take that to the bank. And that's one branch of Christianity. And then there are those who say, well, maybe Genesis 1 is poetic, meant to be taken poetically like Judges 5. Now, Judges 5, you're probably not as familiar with as Genesis 1. Judges 4 is the story of Deborah defeating the nation of Canaan. So just to give you a little refresher, Canaan uh, was oppressing the Israelites. Deborah was the prophet who was the judge of Israel at the time. She came to Barak, the general, and said, let's fight. Barak said, "Uh, only if you'll fight with me. She said, let's go. Sisera was led by a man named, uh, uh, Canaan was led by a man named Sisera who had iron chariots. They had the technological advantage over Israel. And so the Israelites didn't think they could win. Deborah said, let's fight and you'll see. So Judges 4 is just a straightforward account that says that, that Israel prevailed in the battle over Canaan. Sisera got out of his chariot and ran for help and ended up hiding in the tent of a, of a neighbor of his whose wife, J.L., came to meet him. And she wrapped him in a blanket, and she gave him milk to drink, and he fell asleep. And this is the part I loved when I was a little boy, because little boys are savage. Uh, When he was good and asleep, J.L. took a tent peg and a hammer and nailed him to the ground. Don't you love it? (laughs) So that's that's Judges 4. Judges 5 is the song of Deborah. So Deborah composes a poem to recount the story. It tells the story again, but in a poetic way. And one of the lines of the story is is in verse 20. It says, from heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. And no one thinks that the celestial bodies actually came down and fought against the army of the Canaanites. What they think it means is there was a, a meteor shower or even a big rainstorm. And that would make sense because... That's why Cicero would jump out of his chariot. It got stuck in the mud. This is just speculation, but it's based on what Deborah says in verse 20 of chapter 5. The point is, she's telling a story in a poetic way, so the details aren't necessarily accurate. They're meant to convey a truth that's spiritual. So some Christians say that's what Genesis 1 is, because when you read Genesis 2, it tells the creation story all over again, right? Just differently than chapter 1. And so they'll say, well, chapter 1 doesn't mean God literally created the world 
Monday, Tuesday, or Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He could have done it in any number of hundreds of thousands or millions of years if he chose to. And some of those Christians believe that he used the process of evolution, and some think, no, he just, there were moments of creativity followed by gaps. And that explains what you see in the fossil record. I went to church with a man uh, in the past, a man I really respected, who was a deacon in our church, and he was also a professional geologist. He was retired by then. And he told me, I, I'm fine with the idea of evolution, except I think God came in and created human beings. I don't think human beings descended from a lower form. And that, I think, is, is a, a, an acceptable alternative for some because Adam and Eve have to be real people because Paul mentions them as real people in the New Testament. My point is that there are all kinds of ways to read Scripture and science together, literally, figuratively, without losing the truth of God's word, that God created the world, that it was good. Science does not disprove the Bible. And that's just one example. In fact, one of the great things about the study of archaeology is they keep finding evidence that the things in Scripture actually happened. For decades, there was a belief there was never a David. There was never a King David. They just made him up like we made up Paul Bunyan. And then they started finding inscriptions about King David of Israel in the fossil records or in the, ancient, uh, in the ancient grounds. So science, far from disproving the Bible, continues to bolster it. And finally, number three, can an enlightened person believe in miracles? And this is the idea that, okay, if you want to follow the rules in the Bible, you think that makes your life better, then good for you. You go ahead. Just don't push it off on me. But how can you honestly believe that a whale swallowed a man and then spit him out three days later? How can you honestly believe that somebody walked on water? How can you honestly believe that a virgin gave birth to a child? And this is not a new idea. Some of you know this, but the third president of our country, the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, had a Bible that he kept in which he had cut out all the, all the stories of miracles, the Old Testament and New Testament. And for him, that was the Bible an enlightened person should have. Good rules, good way of living, but you don't have to believe in anything supernatural. But that's, a, that's, that's built on a false premise. It's this idea that if you can't see it in a test tube, if you can't prove it in a laboratory, if no person of modern science has seen this happen, then it can't be true. And where do we get this idea that science is the only thing that can prove truth? I mean, that, that in itself is a statement of faith. Or I like the way, so Alvin Plantinga is a Christian philosopher, and he says, people who believe that are like a drunk who lost his keys and insists, well, they, they got to be under this streetlight because that's where the light is good. So you keep walking around under the light of that streetlight thinking if those keys exist, they got to be here because, well, maybe they're over there. Well, I can't look over there. There's no light over there. And that's people who say, if I can't prove it scientifically, then I won't believe it. We've already talked about how science is a, a beautiful study and it's a necessary study, but there are things that science cannot prove or disprove. If there is a God who created everything, would it really be hard for him to put a baby in the womb of a virgin? I mean, just think about it. If there's a God who created the whole universe, and that's what almost all human beings have believed since the beginning of humanity, 
then would it really be hard for him to do anything he wants to do? Something simple like turn loaves and fishes into enough to feed 15,000 people. Just because someone has never, someone in modern times has never seen something like this happen doesn't mean it hasn't happened, especially if, as the Bible says, the virgin birth only happened once in all of history. Even in Scripture, miracles are rare. Most people who live in scriptural times never saw one. So just because uh, someone who works in a scientific foundation or institution has never proved that this can happen doesn't mean it can't happen. So if you'll turn your page over, I've got a scripture for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. It says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, let me before I read the rest of that, the God of this world, the reason that the G in God there is not capitalized, it's not talking about the Lord God, the God of, of Jesus. It's talking about the one who now is in charge. It's talking about the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So let's go back to where we were. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So why do I quote that right now? First of all, for us, those of us who are believers, what that passage says is there is absolutely no reason for any of us to ever feel superior because we believe in the one true God. We're not superior to people who believe in other gods. We're not superior to people who believe in no God at all. Because, as it says here, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the fact that you and I have found him and have essentially stumbled into salvation, have found the God who created us, is as much a miracle as when God said, let there be light. You could not have figured this out on your own. You did not find Jesus because you're smart. It is a miracle that you and I are saved. Therefore, when we meet someone who's not a believer, rather than be scornful of them and say, I can't understand why you can't believe. Understand, I was once there. Or I would be if I'd been raised as you've been. If I've experienced what you've experienced, I might be in the same place you are. And understand, we cannot argue them into salvation. It is important for us to engage with them in conversation and try our best to answer their questions. It's important for us when we, please hear me, it's important for us when we don't know the answers to say, I don't know, I don't know the answer to that question. Let me see if I can figure it out. I'll come back to you, but don't try to bluff your way through it. It's better to lose an argument, to look foolish, than to lose a friend, than to lose someone who you're trying to win to faith. See, what what you'll find out when you really get down to the bottom is for most skeptics, it's not really these intellectual issues that keep them from believing. It goes back to something deeper. Maybe they were born in, like Francis Collins, born in a family where God just wasn't a subject. Maybe they've grown up thinking, how could anybody believe in something so silly? It's like believing in fairy tales. Or maybe they grew up in a toxic church environment, like my favorite Christian author, Philip Yancey, grew up in a in a very legalistic, uh, independent Baptist home where uh, he grew up and like so many who grew up in that kind of environment, he rejected his faith, walked away. The Lord brought him back. 
Or they grew up in a Christian family that was dysfunctional. Mom and dad acted one way on Sundays and a different way the rest of the week. Or maybe they've experienced some terrible trauma in their lives and they've said, if God is real, how could he let this happen? But it's usually something that has happened in their lives that turns them away from God and then they find intellectual reasons to back up their skepticism. So yes, it's important to know how to respond when they answer questions. It's important to engage with them in dialogue. But ultimately, it's your faithfulness. It's your love. It's your friendship that has the best chance of winning them. It is your faithfulness, your prayers, your constant presence, your loyalty and integrity that will win them. Don't give up. Don't give up. Love them like no one else does. Now, for unbelievers, any unbelievers who are listening to this, let me challenge you to do the same thing that Francis Collins did. Yes, if you hear that scripture, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, you might be highly offended at that. Does the Bible really teach that you're blind? Yes, it does. But what if it's true? Consider the possibility that it's true. What if you do what Collins did and subject your own doubts to the same scrutiny that you subject the Christian faith to? Have you done that? Have you really stopped and said, are my current beliefs sustainable in the face of all the evidence? See, we talked about it last week. What's most important is not how you think the world was made or, or how science and faith reconcile. What matters most is who was Jesus? Have you answered that question? Let me just challenge you to, to spend some time studying his character, his life. Jeremiah 29, 13 is a great promise. God made this to the Israelites, but I think it applies to all of us. If you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. The truth is, for a lot of unbelievers, they don't want this to be true. It would be too much uh, of a shock to their, their current way of thinking. And if you're in that position, if you say, I don't want Jesus to be Lord, I don't want God to be real, I don't want there to be this world where all these things that Christians believe are true. If that's where you are, I understand, but keep in mind, the story of the Bible is not that God made a bunch of rules and the people who are good at the rule keeping go to heaven and the rest of people go to hell. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that God saw a world that was broken, that he'd made perfect, that we broke, and he came on a rescue mission to restore the whole thing. And it cost him his life, but he gave it willingly, gladly anyway. And now anyone who trusts him, anyone who receives that gift, not only is forgiven, but becomes part of that plan of redemption. Where the whole world in the end, the whole world, not all people, but the whole world itself is ultimately redeemed. A world where everything operates like it should. Where we're under the, under the kind governance of a perfect king who loves us enough to die for us. Who has a plan for your life so that everything about you suddenly makes sense. Everything about the way you were made all comes together as you realize you're part of a divine plan since before the foundation of the world to make everything the way it should have been from the very beginning. And if that's, if there's even a possibility that that's true, isn't it worth investigating? Isn't it worth trying out? If you seek me, you'll find me. If you seek me with all your heart, have you tried that? Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you so much that all truth is your truth. We don't have to worry uh, that there's going to be some discovery that disproves your existence or uh, that disproves the, the words of the gospel. Lord, we know that if it's true, 
It's true because you made it so. And so I pray that we would be people of the truth, that we would be people who seek after you in every way. Help us, Lord, especially to love our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, our co-workers who are skeptical, to understand that if we'd been through what they've been through, we might be skeptical too. But Lord, help us to love them as we should, to show them a different kind of life, a life that features so many things that they're missing that this world can't offer. I pray that we would love them in such a way they would be drawn to you, to seek you, and ultimately to find you. Lord, make us the kind of church that draws people to you. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.